Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have my beautiful friend, Claire Middleton here. Claire has been an absolute game changer for eating disorders in Australia, and I am so thrilled to have you with me here today, Claire. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Millie. So for those of you who don't know, Claire Middleton is the founder of the Butterfly Foundation. She's also an eating disorder recovery coach, a life coach, and an internal family systems therapy practitioner. Claire suffered from binge eating, bulimia, and anorexia, and was the carer for her two daughters who battled anorexia. Claire has been a dedicated, passionate advocate for eating disorder treatment in Australia for many, many years. In 2012, Claire received an Order of Australia medal for her work with the Butterfly Foundation as a significant agent for change in the way we prevent and treat eating disorders in Australia. You're amazing. <laughs> and I think, really? <laughs> yes, you did. You did that. Seems to, I seem to have fitted a bit in. You have. Mm. You have. So, but let's go, let's go right back and give our listeners an insight into your eating disorder journey. Okay. Well, I suppose I grew up as a typical um, little middle-class girl in Melbourne um, in a family that, you know, let's not forget 1955, it was post-war and uh, my father, you know, was back from the war in like 45, 46 and I think that there was an environment and a culture then where you were almost seen and not heard but also there was an enormous expectation that you would be good, that you would be perfect and that they were trying to sort of, I think my family were trying to present that not only um, were they leading good and virtuous lives, but their children would be too. So I grew up with constant anxiety, feeling that I was never going to be perfect and I couldn't please them enough. And, um, yeah, very anxious little girl. So I probably started overeating and becoming a binge eater at about 11 or 12 and then um, by the time I was about 15, I was really, yeah, very much over my most healthy weight for a child of that age. And I can remember thinking, this is just, you know, I can't do this. I was 16 when I met my um, husband, first husband, and we were just kids and when I met him and moved into a completely different sort of social group, I can remember the day thinking, well, this isn't going to work unless I'm a thin person. Because we had this crazy magazine growing up called Seventeen with images of um, blonde and blue-eyed skinny American girls on the cover and I just suddenly felt this is not working. So I started dieting. And going on, you know, limits biscuits I can remember I ate and trying to live on, you know, nothing all day and, oh, well, that didn't work. And then one day, and I, I can absolutely remember the day I started to vomit and I developed bulimia. But that would have been in about 1972 and let's not forget that it wasn't in the DSM 
three or four or whatever it was in those days for years after that. So I thought I was just going mad. I never told anybody. And um, it just went from there and it just became it became habitual and an habitual nightmare, complete nightmare. Um, and I didn't know what was wrong with me, not like we do today, and I didn't know it was genetic. And so did you get treatment? No, I had absolutely no treatment. But when I was 29, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And all of a sudden, and I can remember that day too, it's funny how you just never forget those incredibly uh, powerful moments in your life. Mm. And um, I was told that I had to have a radical hysterectomy. I was 29. Fortunately, I had three little children. They were three, five and seven. Um, I can remember that moment. I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, you've got to stop this. What do you want? Because you're going to need absolutely everything to fight this cancer. You're going to have to put everything you've got, Claire, all your determination into getting better. And I never vomited again. It just stopped. But the eating disorder didn't stop. So I got over the cancer and um, I just, I think losing weight through the cancer, suddenly my eating disordered head, which obviously had been there for a very long time, but not being aware of that myself, still no treatment, um, I started to restrict. And I found it very, very difficult to... Um, be comfortable in my body and to be comfortable around food and I was just wanting to restrict and restrict and restrict. So then that probably went for another, like 31, it probably went for at least another 10 years just trying to keep my weight down and um, lots of sabotaging behaviours going into that. And, uh, you know, it really when I look back on it, I can't believe I'm, I survived it, to tell you the truth, Millie. You know, and I hadn't told anybody, hadn't told my husband, wow. hadn't told my doctor, wow. hadn't told anybody. Mm. So it was still this dirty little secret. Oh, just a horrendous secret. Mm. But, yes, you're right. I think that's a very good way to describe it because – the parts that an eating disorder uses, I, I think the parts that most eating disordered um, sufferers that tell me they have up most of the time when the ED is raging are guilt and shame yep. and fear yep. um, and anger, of course, and anxiety. And I just had all of them. And I think that it, when I look back on it, it really makes me realise that you know, you can be weight restored, you can stop vomiting um, and you can really feel like, oh, I'm over the eating disorder. But you're actually not until you can really engage with that healthy self and talk back to that eating disorder self and soften all those parts and get them into perspective like the guilt and the shame and the fear and the anger. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think that is what really stands out the most for me that this is such a mental illness yeah it's not just about the food it's not just about the way how did you feel when you were in your bulimia or or the anorexia how did it feel absolutely wretched just so so wretched because it made me feel that I was not um, good enough Mm. that I couldn't be perfect I had really distorted body image you know, even though I was um, a slim build when I was sick with bulimia, because, you know, with bulimia I was binging as well. So my weight didn't go down to um, a really, you know, obviously thin weight where people would have pointed to me and said, listen, you've got a problem, Claire. So I think I could go, on, you know, right out from under the gaze for a long time. But I just felt every single day desperate, um, panicked. The anxiety was enormous. I got incredible OCD with it and, you know, would have to clean the house constantly all day. And if, oh, I can remember even colour coding clothes in my cupboard, um, putting clothes on the line and all the socks had to be in a line. If one was missing, I would be cranky and get, I'd completely spin out Mm. Yeah, really, really sick, Millie. Really, really wretched and sick. Were there moments where you felt hopeless? 
and like you were never going to get out of this? Um, I didn't understand what it was. Right. So no one, you know, I didn't, I didn't, all I knew was that I was desperately unhappy. Mm. And I just, um, this is when I had the bulimia, as you asked. And then, of course, when I got the ovarian cancer, I think the eating disordered head just switched to another obsession. So then I became completely obsessed about beating the cancer. So I got into meditation um, and I went on the Pritikin diet, which was, I don't even know if it exists anymore, <laughs> but it was meant to be a diet that helped you boost your immune system so that you could your body could fight the cancer. Um, so, yeah, one more obsession really. Just instead of being the person suffering from bulimia I started to become the person suffering from the ovarian cancer mm. right now like in the here and the now have you come to a place of acceptance with your body absolutely yeah absolutely how does that feel absolutely glorious <laughs> it's just fantastic um I, I just can't I can't really look back and think how I could have wasted so many years worrying about something that was so unimportant. Like, so insignificant, but so at the time, insignificant. it seems like the be-all and end-all. Oh, it does. And, you know, but I do have enormous empathy and sympathy for my um, eating disorder clients that I coach who are exactly where I used to be because nothing yeah. at the time, you can't just push a button and change the way you see yourself. You have got to work really, really hard to get to that body acceptance point of view. But I also reckon, Millie, that um, I haven't met too many women in my life, and I'm not talking about people suffering from eating disorders. I haven't met too many women in my life who absolutely love their body. So I think it's really quite unrealistic to think in recovery that you have to get to a point where you jump out of the shower and you look at yourself in the full-length mirror and go, wow, don't I look fabulous? You know, some oh, days exactly. actually I do say that. But this is how weird the brain is because that could be on Monday. And Tuesday I could jump out of the shower and go, oh, my goodness, grab the towel. That, that's a bit of a fright. And then, you know, maybe Wednesday I'm back to thinking I'm a goddess. So <laughs> I really do understand that it is um, a brain malfunk for me with my sense of body image, but it never depresses me. I think this is the thing, and I always say to clients, it's like, yeah, I have my good days and my bad days, with, yeah. you know, but it doesn't change the way I nourish myself or the way I move my body or I'm still kind to myself and I don't dwell on it. I just decide oh, I'm going to put on a flowing dress or whatever. And I think that's the difference as you still have those up and down days, but it's the way that you, you know, you take it on board, whether you actually spend time dwelling on it or you just move straight on and go, oh, well. Because it's exactly. not important. Mm. It's just, it is not important. And I love the way Carolyn Coston describes our body as our earth suit. Yes. And I love using that because with my clients and with myself because it really makes you realise that, you know, who you really are is between your ears and it's in your heart. Sure and, is. you know, I say to people, um, you know, what do I want written on my epitaph? When I die, do I want someone to write, or here lies Claire, the thinnest person who ever walked the planet? <laughs> or do I want to say, oh, here's Claire Middleton who, yeah, ha had beautiful children, was a great mother, she's a wonderful grandmother, she did a lot of work for the community and she felt very happy when she died because she felt she'd left a better footprint than when she'd come into it. That's what I want to be remembered for. And I don't want anyone to... Um, yeah, remember me for about my body. Goodness. I no. And I want to thank my body, though. I love my body yes. because it gets me around. Yes. And it enables me and I love my brain, you know. Yeah. And I love other things about me. Because mm. I think sometimes we take that all for granted. Yeah. You know, when we're able-bodied and, and until something happens mm. um, and then we're forced to sort of go, oh, gosh, we really did take that all for granted. But I, I agree with you and I love what you always say, which is – that you might be weight restored, but are you heart restored? Yes. And I often mm. say that to my clients, that my dear friend Claire, this is what she says, mm. and because it's so important. Because um, the weight is one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. 
Absolutely, it's only one piece of the puzzle and I think the, the most important thing for me in my recovery was learning to love myself, yes. learning to accept myself, learning that I am enough just the way I am and as long as I've given it a good shot at whatever I'm doing, I'll be proud of that and that's way more important than having to be perfect. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when you've got this gene to have an eating disorder, you do have those traits like perfectionism and um, a little bit being a little bit obsessive and very determined and um, hypercritical of yourself, hypersensitive. I mean, they're all there, but you can see that those as a liability, or you can actually flip them around and see every single one of those traits uh, as an asset. And when you see them as an asset, that healthy self listens. It's always listening, that healthy self. And when the eating disorder might spark up something negative in relation to those trays, my healthy self always comes charging in like the cavalry saying, oh, no, 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 you know, <laughs> you're not you're not obsessive, Claire. you're just very detailed. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I think it's very good to... Um, yeah, see yourself in a different light and try to be positive. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. It's very powerful. Now, your daughter's battled eating disorders too. Mm. Was that really heartbreaking as a mother to know that they were going through the same pain that mm. you'd been through? Absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it was just so – it was so hard because um, having not had any treatment, mm. I really didn't know that my head was fixed or not. And in fact, when we started family therapy and started their treatment, my ears were just wildly listening, thinking, oh my goodness, do I need to listen to that? So my reaction to them developing anorexia was um, very primitive. You know, it was almost like a primal scream, no, don't go down this path. But I didn't have the skills, A, to know why I'd got it myself mm. or how to stop it or the skills to be able to help them not go down that path. And, you know, thank goodness we found fantastic treatment yeah. um, and it took a while but they both made a full recovery. Mm. Were there times that you ever blamed yourself? No, never. Isn't that funny? I never, no, never ever blame myself. I mean, there were times where I thought, oh, if maybe if I had loved my body more, there were comments that I wouldn't have made that they would have heard. For example, in a dressing room trying on a dress and the shop assistant comes and says, you know, would you like to try this on? And I would look at it and say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly wear that. I'm just way too fat for that. And the assistant would say, but just try it on. I'd say, oh, no, 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 no. Mm. And the little mm. girls were on the, you know, either sitting on the floor in the change room. or And, and I, I suppose I felt, never blamed myself for it, but I, if looking back, I absolutely know if I had had more knowledge the way I have now, and the way that we teach people how to speak to young people and how to behave in front of young people, um, I might, they might have avoided it. But, you know, it is genetic. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. What was the catalyst for starting Butterfly? Talk me through that. Well, that was we were at this clinic, um, which was run by Jan Clark, you know, from the Bronte Beautiful Foundation. Jan Beautiful Jan and an amazing clinic. It was called Footprints of Angels in those days. And I, we'd been going there, I suppose, for about two years with the, both the girls, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. On it went. Um, <laughs> but I can re specifically remember that there was a mum there who had one seriously ill, beautiful girl and then the second daughter was diagnosed and they, had, they were living in regional Victoria and the effort to get down to the clinic was huge. Plus um, there were problems with finances, et cetera, et cetera, and she, she could only afford to treat, they, she and her husband could only afford to treat one um, child. And I was just beside myself. I said, that is so, that is just not fair. Yeah. That is just not fair. And so I came home and said, you know, 
really hate the stigma around this illness because that is what's stopping it being treated properly. This was in the days where people in hospital were being treated punitively with the eating disorder, you know, if you don't do this, we'll take away that. You know, that was the attitude and they didn't understand that the child or the the person with eating disorder hadn't chosen this and they didn't need to be told how bad they were and they didn't need to be punished because they were already punishing themselves enough. So I really thought two things need to happen. We've got to change the public health system so that it's more accessible for treatment because you have to you can't get over this by yourself. Everyone who gets an eating disorder, I believe, firmly has to be treated. And not and I think the other thing that it really clearly stated to me was that we have to change the culture and the practice of both the prevention of it and the treatment of it. It was a cultural shift that I wanted, as well as accessibility to treatment. Social justice. And that was it. But I never understood what I was starting. Mm. I was just, you know, sitting at my kitchen table in my dressing gown thinking, well, this is what I'm going to do. And then, oh, my goodness. And then the next minute it's like Frankenstein. It just it, it just grew and grew and grew. And, I, and the other thing, Millie, I never – I actually doubted myself whether anyone else thought the way I thought about body image but I was actually working as a volunteer in palliative care and I met the most beautiful woman who had started SIDS, Karine Fitzgerald. Ah. And I was just working as, you know, the tea and coffee lady and massaging feet and hands as a volunteer at um, this hospital in Melbourne. And one day I said to her, my goodness, how amazing starting SIDS. I said, do you know what, I wish, I wish someone would do something like that for body image and eating disorders. And she just looked at me and she said, girl, do it. And that was it. So every Monday she mentored me on how to start, who to speak to. Yeah, every Monday, every single Monday. And she just said, and she gave me the confidence that I wasn't the only person in Western society who Mm. was struggling with eating disorder and body image. And my daughters weren't either. So that really was, you know, the beginning of it all. And it grew quite organically from there? Very grassroots, very organically. Um, And I suppose that's why I decided to leave it after all of those years and resign from all things Butterfly because it became very corporate. And um, I don't have any corporate skills, really. <laughs> I have lots of grassroots skills mm. and I want to get back into the trenches and be with people who are suffering. I wanted to make their lives better. I wanted to help them find the right people to get them better. Um, and I loved training with Carolyn Coston to become a coach. Yeah, mm. it's very much not you as a person, that whole corporate, you know, it's just not, it's not who you are. You have this sparkle and this warmth and this ability to connect uh, with with people and and I think although it must have been really, really difficult for you to make that decision to leave, what you have done since then has been amazing as well. Yeah, well, it's, so, it, it's just, um, I love it. I love it every single day and um, I'm a very passionate person and I was passionate about Butterfly. And as it grew more and more corporate and the office was in Sydney and big end of town in Sydney were running it and that, you know, that's what it needed to grow. It needed that corporate expertise to make the money and get government on side to do the big things. Mm. But um, that's not me. Uh, Whereas just spending time on the phone or face-to-face with someone right back where I was way back then... And I, I think if only someone had spoken to me the way I speak to my clients and helped them find the right people because, you know, as we all know, we need a multidisciplinary team to get people through this. But a lot of families don't know who to put in the team. They don't know where to find them and they don't know what hospital options there are. So there's a big role that I um, perform in helping people find their pathway. Absolutely, and I think, you know, what your decisions are a a big sort of, (laughs) I guess, glowing example of staying true to yourself. 
Yeah. Staying true to who you are as a person and following following your heart. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, uh, when we think about the eating disorder landscape in Australia now, uh, compared to when you first started the Butterfly Foundation, what do you think the biggest changes have been? I think the biggest changes have been the involvement of the family. When I started Butterfly um, in public health, there was an assumption that the family had caused it, that the parents had had a lot to do with the blame of it. So therefore we will take them out of the treatment team. You know, I used to take my daughters to their practitioners, uh, their therapists, and I wouldn't be included. You know, and that was you really felt like, well, you know, you can sit in the waiting room and wait, but you've really caused this. So, you know, but I think one of the biggest changes was treating the family. You know, the family therapy has been incredibly successful. Being non-punitive is, has been a very big shift. I just screamed from the rafters that, you know, your child has not chosen this and no one would choose this and you didn't cause it to the parents but you are part of the solution. I loved what Jan Clark used to say. She said, you know, your daughter doesn't just have anorexia, Claire. Your whole family's got anorexia. And she was absolutely right because it is sort of cultural within the family the way that the dynamics of the family. It doesn't mean that we're all um, restricting our food. I don't mean it like that. But meaning that we've all got the same sort of patterns going on. Mm. And in the last 20 years, I think, I'm just absolutely so thrilled to see the way mums and dads and carers, when I meet them, are so informed. They have so much knowledge. They have read so many books. They've changed their language. They've really got it. Mm -hmm. And it is so great. And even with the ones where maybe one parent's got it, the other, you know, working so hard, hasn't got it doesn't take them long to be able to work out how they can start to communicate with their child in a way that the child's going to understand. Yeah. Mm. And it's such small changes like that that can be so incredibly transformative. Yeah. Like just stopping. I remember being, oh, so angry mm. with my children and, oh, no, screaming, saying, well, just eat, you know, just eat. Mm. Well, what a disaster that is. So, you know, at least now I love being able to say to a parent, you know, for a start, there's lots of hope your child's going to get well. We know a lot about this illness now. There are fabulous therapists out there, brilliant doctors. The hospital system is amazing at keeping your child alive. And so you don't need to be as concerned so your you can, your anxiety can come down a peg. And when we've got your anxiety down a bit, let's talk about how, you know, you can you could respond differently to different situations. And I love texting parents when they've got a bit of a problem and they um, text me and say, X has just said this, you know, what will I do? What will I say? It's a game changer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I have I have parents do that to me as well and it's like right and you I go right back into that when okay mum and dad said this that would have been really helpful but if they said that it would have been an absolute red rag to a bull. Yeah. And when you've got that insight and you can yeah you know exactly what is going to get through and what is absolutely not. It's invaluable. And going to trigger them and make them worse. Yes. A yes. classic is um when a parent says to a child when they are in you know getting recovered and I hear the one where the the child hears, you look so well. Mm. And all of a sudden they go, she thinks I look fat or he look, thinks I look fat. And, you know, it's so true. So you teach parents to don't make any comments whatsoever. So try and if you have to say something, say, my goodness, your eyes are so sparkly this morning. Mm. And I leave it at the eyes. I think, you know, we're not going to go anywhere where that Ed can – pick it up and do something with it. Mm. Now, like me, you've trained at Carolyn Coston Institute yes. to become a certified eating disorder recovery coach. Why do you think that recovery coaches are becoming so sought after? Well, they are, aren't they, Millie? It's incredible, mm. the demand for them. I think that they are an amazing adjunct to the multidisciplinary team. They're not – it's it's not therapy – 
but it is it's not changing it's not sort of dealing with why did this come to you why are you why did you get your eating disorder it is more about well how are we going to get you out of here how are we going to change your behaviors how are we going to help you challenge the eating disorder behaviors and the sabotaging behaviors and that is something that you can't just say to someone once a week no you know <gasps> Because the eating disorder is actually just forgotten that 24 hours later. Not even 24 hours later. Not even 24 (laughs) hours later. So we can really help um, the treatment team if it may be the dietician has set a snack plan, we can help them eat the snack plan, we can help them get it in, we can help them challenge the ed when it tries to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to have my morning snack. Or, you know, we we can help them through text it's the immediacy of being there when the wheels are falling off yeah. and being able to, like, calls at half past nine at night, texts at 11 o'clock. You know, it's just fabulous that you know, I just have my phone by me the whole time and respond immediately. And if you're not going to go into a full session at 11 o'clock at night, but you can certainly help them to the point that the drama and the hiatus of what's going on can be calmed mm. and that we can talk about it tomorrow. Mm. So I think that, you know, that we are an essential in, agree, ingredient in the treatment team. Mm. I often talk about it as a missing link because I really think those moments that we can provide, as you say, that really immediate here and now advice in the moment mm. for people who, you know, whether it be they're about to purge or they're, you know, tempted to go for a run or you know, not, as you say, not wanting to have their morning snack. We can be there to reassure them, remind them of their values, remind them what they're fighting for, what are your goals, Mm. you know, and bring them back to that moment. And they'd breathe a sigh of relief and go, oh, gosh, that's just what I needed. Right, I'm going to go and do the thing. Whereas there's no point in in that all happening and then you're going to therapy on a Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock and saying, well, yes, this happened. And then it also happened, you know, and, and then working through strategies and, but then the strategies, it's hard to implement them when you haven't got someone you're a cheerleader, mm. <laughs> so you're someone just holding your hand and gently guiding you through through that process. Mm. And don't you, I? I really believe that my own experience that is so genuine that you can see it in the face of the client when you say, "Yeah, I know, yeah. I know, I was Absolutely. like that too." Absolutely. You know, particularly with things like the OCD. You know, if I hadn't have had such bad. OCD when I had bulimia I don't know that I'd actually be able to understand how intense it is and that you can't just stop it you know I had the exact conversation with a client this morning around Mm. that we were talking about the numbers and then how you kind of feel really uncomfortable if that number's not quite right of the certain repetitions that you're doing and and the anxiety that's that's around that so then you have to go and do do more but then and how you can learn to control that and the interplay between mm. the eating disorder and the OCD because, my goodness, it's rife. Mm. Mm. I think that the eating disorder uses, you know, all your trays that you, we've got on this gene that we get. Um, the eating disorder uses those trays and it's like it puts them on steroids. They go into overdrive in order to achieve what the eating disorder wants to achieve, which is destruction. So I like to look at it that if I can encourage them to see how well I am now Mm. if I can really show them yep I was right where you are but there's one way out of this and this is talking to your healthy self and making that healthy self stronger so that it will then one day use all those traits because they're not going anywhere you know you can't just sort of say we'll get rid of the eating disorder you know push it away never look at it again it's you it's you it's part of you but if the healthy self can use those traits then it's, you know, it's not all for naught. You can start to celebrate the way you are, but you're not into the mode of destruction anymore. You're into well-being and health. Mm, so, so important. Now, you're also an internal family systems practitioner. Can you explain to our listeners what that's all about and how it can be beneficial in eating disorder recovery? Yeah, it's so interesting, the um, internal family systems therapy. Um coming from Dr. Richard Schwartz in Chicago, who was is a psychiatrist and was treating eating disorder patients. And he realised that it wasn't as simple as, um, for him with his patients, he, he realised that it wasn't as simple as just having one 
part of them doing the eating disorder and one part not doing the eating disorder, that there were multiple parts. Mm. So really these multiple parts are in all of us. All human beings have lots of parts. We have happiness, we have sadness, we have determination, we have perfectionism, the pleaser, the inner critic, the taskmaster, um, it's so many parts. Mm. So internal fam- family systems enables um, you to recognise what part comes up when your behaviour, when your eating disorder behaviour is running and raging or whatever. You know, you can, you can isolate the parts that the eating disorder is using and rather than telling them to go away, you, get, you become curious. So you teach the client to become curious about that. So a lot, of, a lot of the time I think guilt and shame come up and so the conversation just sort of goes that, well, can you feel it in your body? Can you, where is it? You know, can you sense it? Is it a colour? Is it a shape? Put your hand on it, you know, if it's up in their chest or down in their tummy. Get to know it, be curious and be compassionate and all parts are welcome. And then the, the, um, there's a protocol for following the practice of IFS that takes the, takes the client on a journey to really explore why, for example, guilt, talk to guilt. What's its job? When did you start doing your job? What are you afraid is going to happen to X if you stop doing your job? And then it goes on to, does, do you want to tell a story? And so guilt might tell a story and it might bring up a childhood memory um, of an inner child where guilt played a, um, played a part and became a memory. And then as we grow up as children, those memories get stored, they don't get resolved and then they get protected, they're sort of locked up, we call them exiles then, and they're being protected um, by those traits like guilt, shame, anger, fear. And we want to teach the client that they can work out that that was that memory, but we can actually redo it or we can unburden it. Or just talking to the protector is just so important, just getting them to have a conversation with the guilt or the fear or the anger to see if that can help them make the connections as to why that comes up and why it makes them feel in a certain way. So I've found it with... um, I've found it with my with some of my clients incredibly helpful. Mostly I just use the language, Millie. I don't actually go down deep into the um, you know, the the therapy part of it because I find that they get so much out of just being able to recognise what emotion is up for them. So say it's anxiety, oh no, and then they can talk to it and then they can ask it to soften relax and step back and then they do and you can give them a distance to to step it back forwards backwards to the sides we're in the next room I had a little client which um I used I used to eat her lunch with her and she had a lot of fear and she couldn't eat because the fear was just flooding her and overwhelming her and so um she got really good at getting that fear to actually go almost like 200, 300 metres. In fact, sometimes she put it in the in the bus stop and I kept on thinking, good, maybe it can, maybe it can take a bus and go away for a bit longer. So, yeah, I just use it. I, I use it like that. Hmm. It sounds, yeah, it sounds like a really powerful modality and I, it's similar to the way that I use NLP in terms of I interweave it with a recovery coach and you're right, it's hmm. language. It's the language. Using that language and that is where I find it the most powerful. Yeah, because, you know, if you know yourself, if you're absolutely flooded by an emotion like fear, you know, and I've, I've been in order to become an IFS practitioner, level one, I haven't done level two and level, level three yet, I've had to be a client and I have never done, and I've done psychotherapy with a psychiatrist back in my 40s, 50s, um, this was so powerful. It was so powerful at shifting some really stubborn parts that were coming up and being very bolshy and overwhelming and flooding me. And it made sense. Some few childhood memories came up and wow, you know, and then the, they were unburdened and released and they've just never come back. 
it's extra it is the most extraordinary form of therapy and the th- thing i love about it is it's actually um a self-help therapy so people can get on and look it up on youtube you can buy books on it you know you can actually use it yourself as a self-help therapy and there are lots of practitioners in australia and, and a lot of therapists that use it you know they're ifs um psychotherapists mm. psychiatrists use it psychologists use it just one more modality really <laughs> just one more i know mm. what's been the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you um the eating disorder journey of mine personally or the whole i feel like my my life's been an eating disorder <laughs> journey with well, I everyone guess what, around whichever, me whichever you'd like to refer to i think that it's um i think it's given me enormous resilience you know it's it's taught it's really taught me what matters and what doesn't matter it's really made me realize that sticking to rules and regulations in your head that are completely nonsensical um are worth challenging and that's you know across the board in life whatever it might be it's always worth questioning and not just believing what your head tells you it's taught me that i'm not my thoughts you know, I think that's really important. It's such a um, powerful indicator of that. When you're sick with an eating disorder and you're, you really believe what that Ed is telling you, you really believe that you're not good enough, you really believe that you're too you know, overweight or you believe you're not the right shape. Um, when you go through the journey of recovery and you come out the other side, it enables you to really see that, the mind can make up anything, but it in equal parts, it also, the mind can um, turn it around. Yeah. Like you can believe, you can tell your mind anything and it will believe it. So, yeah, I think it's on balance. I think it's been a positive. Would I have liked a life without it? Absolutely. You know, I really would have. But I've loved doing Butterfly. That was a great experience in itself, knowing that you can take on something that other people said to me, you are never going to change that, Claire. You can't change that, Claire. Body image is just, you know, endemic in Western society. No, There's no way you can even push that back. Well, it's interesting this, you know, and I just said, well, watch this space. And I think I have been able to make a big dent in the conversation have. I love telling young people there's something you're passionate about and you think that you can make it a better world for others do it give Absolutely. it a go stand up be counted speak out yeah you know. and I think but also you've got to do it with a lot of respect you know you've got you can't just um in changing the culture around eating disorders, I didn't want to go in with a great big stick and, mm. you know, bash up every medical health practitioner who who was doing it the way they'd already always done it. That is just hopeless. You know, I think you've got to, if you want to change, you've got to bring people with you. In your opinion, what are the best ways that people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? Keeping them safe, not blaming them understanding that they can't help their behaviour, offering them a hug if that is what the person would like, always asking first. Um, I think it's about you have to really understand it's going to take time and Mm. it's going to take a very long time. It may impact upon your family life with other children. It may impact upon your work. It is a very, very difficult illness to support because of all the illnesses I can think of it's actually the the, it's non-compliancy you know (laughs) if you get cancer and some word for it (laughs) non-compliancy well you know I'm just thinking of um all the other illnesses that you can get and someone says well you know you've got this you have to do that for it you go and do it willingly, whether it be cancer or, you know, I didn't question when they said you're taking, we're having a radical hysterectomy, Claire. I wasn't going to say, oh, well, no, I don't think I will have that today. I mean, you know, you don't you do not do that. Whereas in this illness, oh, look out for the raging those poor tantrums. health service pr- practitioners mm. that know what has to happen and they 
just the they just get that look from the you know Ed's looking at them going, no, we won't be doing that. No, we won't be eating. <laughs> no, you know, I think it's really, yeah, it's re- it's a very very hard role. I think the other important thing is that if you have a loved one with an eating disorder, you must take care of yourself. Yes. You must do um, the things that help you be strong. You know, for some people, it might be taking a yoga class. It might be just going for a mindful walk in the park with the dog and looking at the trees and feeling the wind in your face, getting time out, um, reaching out yourself to help the health service pr- practitioners. If you start to get anxiety and depression, that has to be treated as well. Um, you know, I've, uh, 10 years of caring I had and I'd say the worst 10 years of my life. It was just absolutely just awful. Absolutely awful. Um, yeah, I suppose that it, first of all, you've got to get really good treatment. You can't do it on your own. You can't be the therapist of your child or your loved one. You've got to get a really good team around you and you have to be a part of that team and you have to make sure that they allow you to be a part of that team because you've all got to be on the same page. And the more voices that the sufferer hears saying the same thing, the more chance you've got of them hearing it and taking it on board. When they're hearing the same thing from every direction, from everyone around them, mm. they've got much greater chance than everyone just say maybe just one person once a week talking to them and they come home and no one else is saying that. No, it always needs to be reinforced. Mm, very much so. Mm. Finally, what words of wisdom do you have for those listeners out there who are still in the trenches of their eating disorder, battling through each day? I think hope. Mm. I love the way you always say there is hope, Millie. I think you never, ever, ever give up that one day you will be free of this because more and more we've come a long way with treatment and more and more hope is an absolute reality and recovery is an absolute reality. Don't get disheartened if you're doing really well and then you have a relapse because it's not linear. And it's, you know, you can't sort of think, oh, I was doing so well and now here I am restricting again or here I am vomiting again. You just go back to basics and you just go back, you know, start again doing the same things talking to healthy self wisdom it's hard to know whether it's wisdom that i would reflect on in sort of thinking what would you do in the trenches i think it's about courage as well i think you have to actually have the courage to take that big leap because the eating disorder is so clever at making you feel that it's your best friend and that there is nothing else for you other than just being the eating disorder, that it's just you and I, buddy, and there's no one else out there for you. And it's very, very frightening to let it go because it's everything to you. It is your identity at that time. And when the therapeutic team start to pull out the, ident- the identity, pull out the eating disorder. It's like a tree with someone pulling out of the trunk of the tree some parasitic illness. You've got to be filling it up at the same time as you're pulling it out. So I love to say to clients, as you're having your eating disorder gently and quietly or you know, slowly or quickly pulled away and pulled out of you, Make sure you're filling it up with things like your passions, your values. Start to think about what am I recovering to? Not always what am I recovering from. Start to look up and out and see what's there ahead of you because I can tell you from my perspective with my life, um, it's been a great life, a grand life. And I don't think when I was sick I ever saw that I could that I had the potential to make it so good. And I wish that I think I'd just love to say you it's always going to be there for you, that, you know, hope, 
that one day it will be better and hang in there. Mm, I think you're so right about the leap. I always talk about the leap of faith because you have to have that courage you have to. to take that leap of faith. Mm. And as scary as it might seem, my goodness, it's worth it. Oh, abs- absolutely. It is so worth it. Yeah. And stick to your therapy. That's the other thing. You know, that's a bit of wisdom. Just if, if you haven't got the right therapist, get another one because there will be one It's like a lock in, like it's like your head is the lock and you've got a key. The, therapist, it, the therapist's got the key and you keep trying keys. One day one is going to open up your head and be fabulous. So, you know, I think that's an important message too. It's the same thing with other forms of health. If you're not happy with the answer you're getting, we feel very comfortable getting a second opinion. So I think people we should feel very comfortable um, making sure that we get the right team around us. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all your beautiful knowledge and passion. Um, you are amazing. Love oh, Ellie, I don't think so, but, you know. Hey, <laughs> what part of you is coming out there? Oh, that might have been that <laughs> Ed head. Mm, oh, healthy mm. self's coming. I can see the feathers <laughs> on the horses. You are, mm. you are amazing. And I am so grateful for everything that you've done to really pave the way for what we are now able to see happening in the eating yeah. disorder landscape in Australia. Because I don't believe that if you hadn't started Butterfly and done all that incredible grassroots work that you did, that we would be in the space that we're in now. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. And on the behalf of all eating disorder sufferers in Australia, thank you. Oh, thanks, Millie. Well, I'm very, very proud of it and I'm proud of all the people who have helped me make it a success. And I just had a meeting on the steering committee with the NEDC last week and I almost cried at hearing about the money that was flowing more research, more services. I've just almost, I just, I was just so overwhelmed. I mean, they have worked so hard. So it really has been an incredible team effort right around Australia. So, you know, I, I am very flattered by the compliment, Millie, but, you know, it is a, it's a lot of people are in this field doing amazing things. It's a joint effort sure are and here's hoping that we just continue to go from strength to strength and yeah. keep changing the game until it doesn't exist absolutely wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> this is the end eating disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway self storage and podspot your financial support will save lives donate at endead.org.au i always used to think like how can people not hear what's going on in my head 